Hey guys, it's Dave here. Hope everyone is staying safe and those on the East Coast shoveling out of all of the snow. I miss that quite a bit, actually. I want Hugo to play in that, but we have a good podcast for you. Hopefully every week is a good podcast. I'm going to start off talking about soy sauce and uh, the caramel salted water that people may or may not know. And this isn't a full podcast about soy sauce, just a brief intro about soy sauce. And then we're going to get into a conversation with Chef JJ Johnson of Field Trip in New York. And we'll get into a variety of things. It's sort of like a half dad's half too small to fail. I learned a lot basically about, uh, I don't have any problems that he has, uh, raising twins. Uh, <laughs> Chris doesn't either, but, um, I'll shut up and get into that right now. Thanks. This episode is brought to you by Pure Leaf Iced Tea. Great iced tea takes you somewhere else like new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea that we have here at the Spotify Studios and drink quite a bit where unexpectedly blackberry flavor transports you to a very delicious place. So refreshing you may never want to leave. You will eventually have to though, but take your time. Try new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Visit amazon.com slash pureleaf and enter 20 Pure Leaf. That's 20 Pure Leaf for 20% off your purchase of new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. Hey guys, wanted to talk a little bit about soy sauce today. Yes, a little bit of a shameless plug since Momofuku is selling soy sauce and tamari, but I think a lot of people don't know about soy sauce. There's some very great soy sauce available. This isn't going to be a long history lesson, just a quick primer, but just quickly how soy sauce is made. It's been around for a very, very long time. There are variations of how it's made and Basically, the step is this. You take soybeans. Soy sauce traditionally is made with wheat grains, and you steam them. You inoculate it with a fungus called Aspergillus orzai, or the Japanese call it koji. Korean kangjang, Korean version of soy sauce, is made a little bit different, but similar ideas. And then you mix that in a saltwater solution or a dry salt solution, and then you let it ferment as the mixture ferments, the aspergillus breaks down proteins, and long story cut short, you get amino acid production and sugar production, and you get the color transformation, so you get that dark brown, almost blackish-like color. And then you can process that further, and you can age it, and that aging process is also important to mellowing out. And again, very different than vinegar, right? But if you taste a very old balsamic vinegar versus one that is maybe age five years versus something that's age 20 plus, it's night and day, and it's very similar to soy sauce. And a lot of people haven't gotten into the world of aged soy sauce. And this is a beautiful story. Okay production and 
in at least in Japanese culture, how the cedar barrels were used to do sake, and then those barrels got went, moved down to soy sauce producers, and over a millennia, those same buckets came down to miso production. It's a beautiful cycle and very central to Japanese cuisine and the soy sauce production in general is all very similar in many of the countries in Asia, but not all the same. That's a whole nother story. What I wanted to just say is soy sauce is a beautiful product. I can't imagine cooking without it. And it's one of the things that I believe we need more variety in. And there's light soy sauce, there's dark soy sauce, there's shiro shoyu, which is used with maybe a little bit more wheat. Again, I'm not trying to bore you with the difference and the variety right now. I just wanted to tell you that I believe wholeheartedly that you're going to see a variety of different things out there. And, you know, we've launched one ourselves. The one thing that I hope that people realize and that I am, I don't want to say vehemently against, but I hope people understand that most soy sauce, when I say most, I don't have the data. I just know that those packets that you get for the most part, or I don't want to name the company, but there's a a company that makes, you know, chemical produced soy sauce. Ultimately, you can sort of hack the soy sauce. So it's not really the production of soy sauce. You add some chemicals, you get amino acid production, glutamic acid production, and you mix caramel coloring, salt, and corn syrup. And that gives you something that is like based on a true story of soy sauce. That I think, I'm sure it has its place, but it's not even close to what really great soy sauce is. And I think we're in the beginning stages of what that is. And there's a lot of great soy sauce. Um, I think that some of the producers in Asia that sell their product here in America sell that chemical-induced, produced version of soy sauce, the one that's based on a true story. And that's not how they make it in their home countries. And there's some really great soy sauce out there. Like, I like usukuchi in general. Um... I like Korean soy sauce, kangjang. It's different. Um, I don't use too much dark soy sauce. I love shiro shoyu. I can go on and on. I don't want to bore you. We should probably have a more in-depth conversation of soy sauce. But what I wanted to get to is this. It's a beautiful production. I just don't think a lot of people realize that when I say a lot of soy sauce is caramel water, it actually is caramel water. Really. I'm not <laughs> making that shit up. And um, for soy sauce to get better, we need to know how great it can be. And listen, to make amino acids that way, I don't want to get in that conversation. You can still make it delicious. I'm not saying it's delicious, but it's not soy sauce, right? Liquid aminos, hey, very tasty, but it's a chemical hack and it's not soy sauce. And if people knew that they're just eating liquid aminos mixed with caramel, salt, and corn syrup, you know, I think maybe hopefully people would think otherwise and they might direct their efforts and their sort of purchasing power to smaller producers. And listen, there are some fantastic large producers of soy sauce. I just think that some of that soy production is not the same. I am babbling on, but I wanted to just say that we can make it, we can do it, not necessarily better, although I think we can. It can be something that tastes different. And more places that make their own kinds of soy sauce will taste different. It's got the same terroir, 
of wine. And I want that. I want to be able to go and choose different kinds of soy sauce, different kinds of misos, just like anything else that's fermented that I think is delicious can taste different. I like tasting different things. What I don't want is something that is monotone and is the same and is like effectively telling the world that all soy sauce tastes like frozen concentrated orange juice. I'm realizing right now I'm talking out of my... I sound like I'm talking out of my my mind, and I I am because I'm converging a ton of different topics into what I'm basically saying is this. We need to have different kinds, and I hope that we have that diversity on the shelf. And I hope that people realize that not all countries make the same kind of soy sauce. Chinese soy sauce is very different. Dark soy sauce, everyone should have dark and light and different kinds, man. There's so many different kinds of soy sauce. And honestly, no one's better than the other. It really isn't. It's, it's personal preference and the kinds of dishes that you're making, whether it's age, super age, or whether it's got different kinds of flavorings in it. There's a whole world of soy that is available. And I hope that we can find ways to adopt some of those principles here in America. And um, that's all. We are dead. We are dead. We have children, so we are dead. I don't think either one of us had kids when we last saw each other, and now we're both in this wonderful world of multiple children. How many kids do you have? I got two. How old? Nine months, or however long we've been in quarantine. And a, and a four-year-old. And, oh, so uh, you just got out of that three phase. That three phase is hard. Nobody tells you about threes. Let me tell you something here. There are no phases, my friends. <laughs> there aren't these, these phases are invented to make mothers and fathers feel better or that there's going to be some sort of light at the end of the tunnel. There ain't no phases. It's just zero to 18 is a phase. <laughs> well, listeners, we, we started recording because we're with Chef J.J. Johnson and, and we just... Off the cuff, realized this should be a dad's podcast in addition to talking about all things Chef JJ and a little bit of the industry and Too Small to Fail. But I think this is our first guest that we've interviewed that has twins. Who? Three-year-old? They're three? Three and a half now, yeah. Three, three was rough for me, rougher than any. Uh, the moment they turned three, I threw up the white flag. <laughs> I'm still on the, this is getting way more difficult than I thought it was going to be phase now (laughs) because he's throwing temper tantrums. He's got a, Hugo's like spitting now and we're trying to learn how to discipline. (laughs) And it's clear to me how I was disciplined from my dad. I would just get Mm -hmm. hit. You know, it's just like Asian household, late seventies, early eighties, very different than 2020. But I was always scared of my dad because he would just punish us literally. And my mom would, Give me like candy to shut up, right? <laughs> so it's not a surprise when Hugo now has his crazy temper tantrums and I say, oh man, he's a lot like me. My wife says, no, you have not grown out of that phase because you never <laughs> learn. And she's absolutely true. I never learned how to de-escalate a situation. From the whole idea of having like the first night home from the hospital to feeding to bath time to changing diapers 
there's literally many moments per week where I realize, oh my God, how would you have twins? Because I was telling my wife, it'd be amazing to have twins because we just knock it out and be done. And she's like, no, that's not amazing. And you're an idiot, Dave. But simultaneously, <laughs> I look at you and I look at my friends that do have twins and you think about the positives. But before we get to the positive, let's just dive right in. How the hell do you do this? I don't know how I do it. I think my wife being a nurse and me being a cook at heart, right? We're used to chaotic moments all the time, but two different people, two different personalities uh, that want different things at different times. And especially as they got, I used to say, I can't wait till they can talk because they can tell me what they really want. Well, now they can really tell me what they really want, <laughs> especially my daughter, whose vocabulary is probably better than mine. I don't know how. And, uh, my son, who my wife constantly reminds me, that's you. That's how you act. I'm like, I don't act that way. Well, yeah, yeah you still <laughs> act. You act the same way, David. You act that way. So, yeah, it's hard. It's hard. It's really hard at times trying to make sure you are pleasing to people. And especially when it comes to food, I think I can serve them the same dish uh, for dinner or lunch. And no, they. my daughter will tell me, I want my strawberries. My son wants his meat. It's very, these two oh different uh, people. Wait, what do you do? You just figure it out, man. You like, at the end of the day, I'm like, those are my kids. I can't let them down. Can, can I ask you guys both as a dad's question? Because now Hugo, you know, I put on social media, the things that he does eat or doesn't eat is really more the issue these days. And it's growing. And I feel like I've created a problem because we're pleasers. We'll do whatever we can to make someone happy, which is good. Yeah. But this is bad because now I've created a problem because if Hugo doesn't want to eat something, I you're like, JJ, you can whip something up real quick. Right. And she's like, here you go. And that's what I've been doing. And now when I'm not feeding him, it's like, uh, give me something that I want. And I've created a problem. And now I wonder how you do it with two kids where if you feed someone like your daughter and you make her a plate of strawberries and your son's like, I don't want that. I want pancakes. You can do that with your eyes closed quickly. Do you do that? Because I've read now that's problematic because long-term they won't learn how to accept the situation. Well, maybe I've caused some demons here because yes, uh, <laughs> that's what I do. And, um, I think you're right. We're, we're in the business of pleasing, but nobody else can do that. Like, uh, my son wants banana, strawberry, oatmeal, Okay, no problem. He can be in the middle of eating oatmeal and say, no, I want pancakes now. All right, no problem. I got you. Pancakes. Because I'm thinking, I just want you to eat. Yeah. You know? But I definitely, even though sometimes I feel like they're not good eaters, sometimes my friends are like, so what do your kids eat? I'm like, oh, they love steak and lamb. They're like, your kids eat lamb? So yeah, I, I am nervous as they grow into society. Maybe they do need to learn uh, no is no when it comes to food and that will help them out. But that's what you're taught for twins. You're supposed to keep them on the same schedule. They take a nap at the same time. They eat at the same time. We've been doing that their whole life. And now as they turn three and a half, they've went from the, the same yellow brick road to their own separate yellow brick roads. And I, I blame it on school because they try to teach them their own little independence. And uh, <laughs> I, I'm not liking it at the moment. So <laughs> <laughs> so you guys are cavers. You guys cave. You guys will change. You will. Oh, if, if you made something, Hugo wants something else, you'll, you'll cave too? You know, from working in open kitchens, I have developed, you know, this weird skill set. It's like when I see people in sports at the ringer, they watch sports and they can break it down in ways that I have no idea what the hell they're looking at. It's like two different sports when they watch mm -hmm. basketball. And I know basketball, but I'm like, I don't know what the hell they're talking about. 
And the same when I look at diners when they eat, it's all these tells. And I, I can understand in a snapshot moment exactly what I think is happening in the diner's mind, what they're thinking about, and how it's going in relation <laughs> to everything else. And I can make on-the-fly adjustments. I cook probably 95 to 99% of his meals. And quarantine, I have been there with ev- almost every single one. And when he eats, I look at his face and I'm like, oh, he wants it this way. Oh, I, maybe it's more salt. Maybe I need to add this. Maybe I need to do that. And next thing I realize, I've cooked three or four different things on top of the thing that he's eating. And I think I've created a real problem. As JJ's just attested to. This, this is what we do, but how do you turn that off? And I can see this being a real problem because again, when my wife feeds him something and he's like, I don't want this, you know, we're not supposed to give him whatever he wants. Yeah. I don't know See, what to I do. get really upset. I get really mad. <laughs> and, and like sort of this, some of the biggest fights I've had with my wife are over this exact problem where I get upset and she's like, why are you getting upset at them? Like she just doesn't want to eat what you made. I mean, the other night I made, I like put a lot of effort into whatever I made for Ruby. Custom designed meal for a child. And then I put the food down. She goes, I want crab. <laughs> I was like, that's not an, that's not on the fucking menu. No crab today. What are you that's not on the menu. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I just, I don't know. I get, I get really angry because I've already put all this effort into it. And I don't know. I, maybe I'm being, I'm being small about it, but uh, I get mad and my wife gets mad at me over this stuff. But Chris, you don't have twins. Nobody we've spoken to has had the diff- level of difficulty that JJ has. I honestly, yeah. when you post stuff on Instagram, I'm like, I don't know. I honestly, I'm like, I don't know how you're doing it. Man. I would say the, the positive is that they always have, they have a best friend, an instant best friend, right? So during the pandemic where if you had one child and they were driving you crazy to play with them, uh, they have each other and they find ways to play. I mean, it, it's one of the most beautiful things I see is when they play with each other, is that this is instant bond that I will never find in life. This person yep. I consider my best friend is nowhere near as close as they are. And I think I learn a lot about myself through that. My temper, <laughs> the <laughs> discipline of your father, right? You talked about that. Like I was scared of my dad. And I remember like running and hiding from him because I knew he was coming or my mom was sending him to catch me on this wild goose chase running around my house. Um, <laughs> you know, you can't discipline your, your kids that way. Or if I do discipline my kids, there's another kid there telling me, you better say sorry. You screamed that mile. Say sorry now, dad. You know, you have that conscience like next to you that makes you feel so bad about yourself. <laughs> or oh, they're like, man. do you remember? You got in trouble for not holding my hand. Like there's this other voice around all the time. So <laughs> life oh, of man. twins. <laughs> How much amazed are you constantly at their diverging personalities? I'm really, really amazed. Uh, my son is very into technology. My daughter's very into singing and dancing. Um, there's this big gap when we used to have them in swimming. My daughter would be dominating him in the pool. Then when we started soccer, he'd be pushing her and other kids on like, there's this big gap of personality, even though they might do a lot together. They start to tell you what they like and they don't like. And I think the great, the great and the worst thing is. You get to see two different people growing at the same time. And I really see that a, a girl is way more mature than a boy. It's like light, light speed. Um, mm-hmm. Like my son wants to dig a hole. My daughter wants to build a house. You know, it's, <laughs> it's that big of, of a difference. Um, but in some other areas, he, he dominates and, and their intelligence is, is really amazing, but so different. They're these, these two different people that just wind up coming out minutes apart. 
That's unbelievable to me that they're basically getting the same stimuli. <laughs> and I guess, I know it's the miracle life, but it's just never ceases to amaze me now that I'm a dad and I'm seeing the personality develop for good and bad. And this is probably the benefit of having twins. Like one of the good parts is you get double the joy of seeing that growth. That's a, you know, that is one of the very few positives I think at that age right now. But um, no one told me how hard this was going to be at this point in the, the emotional letdown you can have when your children don't behave the way you expect them to behave. <laughs> it is soul crushing, soul crushing. Last night was an example. Chris, you probably could attest to this, right? Your kids don't want to sleep in their bed anymore. They nope. want to sleep in your bed and they don't listen. And I, I think I had one of those dad moments like, you better listen to me now. Right. And uh, kids are used to cuddling with mom and mom loves cuddling with them. And uh, that's where she created her monsters. I might have created them with food. She created these uh cuddle monsters that always want to fall asleep next to her. So, but yeah, you, there's always difficulties and I think parenting and I think people like us that are, are busy and running companies and trying to figure out how to make it, especially in 2020, it gets even harder. Can you guys explain to me, you know, now that parenting is different than baby raising and making sure that they survive, like that's your fear. Now it's like development of the personality and, you know, Hugo is spitting and it's not learning from me. I, he's just doing it at the dinner table and it's clear like he wants attention or something. And we're learning how to tell him that's not a desirable thing. You don't do that. Yeah. I, I think that like, it's like you said, Chang, I think that uh, we're not equipped because if we ever spat at the dinner table, there'd be a very different result than the result we're hoping to to teach our children. And the like realization for me always was because Ruby spit too. She started hissing at people at a certain point too. Just strangers, she'd just be like, hey. uh, and they just want a reaction. Like when you you flip out and you're like, stop spitting, sleep in your own bed. Like that's actually all they want is like there. It's it's sort of cause and effect, right? They mm -hmm. make some sort of action. So they can get a reaction. And that's for me, it's like they're trying to control something. If I know that if I do this, something else will happen. That doesn't mean I can solve it, except that, like you said, they say, like, ignore it. Don't give them what they want. Like, just ignore it. And I'm like, they're spitting in my face. JJ, would you agree then that in some ways, being a parent and being the best version of a parent is a little bit runs to the, the, the idea that the best way to prevent a nickname from sticking is to not react to it? Right. And, and you're just like, whatever. And if you react strongly to it, that's how it sticks. And I know that's a crazy example, but I'd love your opinion because you're seeing this in double, double time <laughs> when you try to discipline your children. If you get out of control and you, I don't know how, with two times, when I ask myself, like, oh my God, I can't get angry. I can't get angry. That it's being self aware and I'm not trying to give a reaction that he's expecting this is like jedi level being a chef too right like how the hell can you learn that early on not getting angry when you're supposed to get angry i'm not sure i mean my wife would always tell me don't don't turn around don't look at them don't look at don't look at them they're on the floor they're crying they're spinning they're on their heads just it's gonna die out you know that's what the books say the book tells you to do that <laughs> the, books the, say the, that. Books. the book the mythical book <laughs> 
It's like the book didn't tell us about the situation. So I don't know. I think every kid is really different on their own. And that's what I've recognized with my children, Miles and Taya, is that each situation, you have to treat them very different. I realized that Taya gets her tantrums when she's tired, right? You recognize that early on. Miles gets his tantrums when he's hungry. And I think everything a child does is they have a reaction of why they're doing it. So spitting or spatting might be because maybe they smell the food and they already know what it tastes like and they don't want that. Yeah. Or maybe they don't like where they're sitting at the table. You know, like this is like all these crazy things you could think about why they're doing it. But how do you discipline them? Oh, Chris, you, you've been in the game a little longer than us. <laughs> no way, man. I, I I have no idea how to discipline my children properly. You know, like, I don't know. You were saying we were all afraid of our fathers. My children could not be less afraid of me, man. <laughs> like, they're just not. There's no fear whatsoever there. So I don't know. But I, I think that, Chang, you were saying it's it's like being a chef. And another thing you talk about in the kitchen is that kind of like CSI forensics style thing, right? You see how somebody has labeled the tape sloppily on on the container. You see something that that leads you to believe something else. And and that's sort of, I think, JJ, what you're talking about too is like, if you're trying to respond to what the kid is doing to you at that moment, then like you've already lost the battle, right? Like they're mad because two hours ago, X thing happened, right? You didn't pay attention mm-hmm. to them and now they're acting out. And I just went through a whole, I mean, speaking of your your sleep problem, JJ, like we just paid a bunch of money to do a sleep consultant because our our son was just like not it was not chill. My parents they made fun of us relentlessly. The idea of paying somebody to help us make our child sleep was a very foreign idea to the previous generation, but you know, the first thing she said was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, I get your kids not going to sleep at night, but like tell me about the naps." And I was like, "Oh, okay. Well, our naps are all fucked up." And so she was like, "The problem started 15 hours ago. Like the thing you're trying to solve started way before you think it did." You know, when we get back to this restaurant industry as it needs to be, and it will, as painful as it will, like everyone's talking about the things that need to change. I think part of it is addressing is being a chef is to me not being a parent, right? It is like exact same thing in so many ways. Uh, you're so right. I mean, I'm telling my my managers and my supervisors like, yeah, I know you have to be repetitious and I know you, you're sounding like somebody's mom or dad, but that's just what it is, right? You have to be repetitious for people to learn. And I think I'm using parenting skills with my team now because the first time I managed a kitchen, I was 27 years old and I did what the last manager did, right? Because I thought that was the right way to manage. And what, was, um, what did you think the right way was? You know, there was a lot of things that I I knew that weren't the right ways, right? Making sure people had some days off, not overworking people, try to get them to use their PTO when they needed to, reminding them. But when I got upset in the kitchen, I got upset. You know, I was a screamer. I'm not a screamer anymore, but I was a screamer, you know, and I would be screaming at people. How how is that possible? Because you're the most affable you gave like the best acceptance speech ever when you won your book for Jen's Beard Awards. And, <laughs> you know, it's like everyone knows you as like the greatest smile and a great chef and someone that is just a nice dude. How is this possible? I mean, I'm a nice guy. I consider myself a nice guy. But I mean, at the end of it, when I would scream at people, I would still pull them to the side at the end. I mean, I my father ran a basketball program, right? And I was in sports heavily. And the people that you see coach you or manage you, there's a lot of screaming involved. Um, they're screaming in the huddles. They're screaming at you to push the ball up the basketball court. So there was these moments of 
My uncle would get mad at me, coaching me, would get in your face. So I, I was around that. And you talk about errors, different errors, right? That's what I knew how to push people, right? If, if I was angry or I needed to get them through a moment, my voice would get louder. But then at the end of service, I would always pull them to say, hey, listen, you got me upset because of X. And then we would talk through it. But at the moment, I would just be pissed. Mm. And my wife does tell me sometimes, you know, you are a little bit of a psychopath, especially with your kids. And you can't be mad at people the same way. Uh, if they treat your children wrong. And that's something I have to learn about this expectation. My wife says the same, exact hmm. same words. <laughs> Except she doesn't say psychopath. She says, you're a sociopath. <laughs> so, um, and you know, you get overprotective. So I manage my my team with kid gloves at the moment, but there were times when, especially when I was at the Cecil, uh, my first time managing a kitchen, like at that level and trying to hit goals and do those things and not let people down. I definitely was screaming. And then, you know, I, I kind of got away from that. I mean, as I became an owner at uh, Field Trip, my director of operations now, Lisa Cash, at that time was a consultant. She's like, listen, you can't get mad and curse at people anymore. They don't respond well. Like, if you say fuck, that's all they hear from you. And she's older. She's been in the game a long time. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, she's like, no, 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 you, you, you just can't do that. Hmm. You can't do that, JJ. You know, hmm. and, and I had to, as I had kids, I would see... For my son, he doesn't do well when I scream, right? So I know I can't scream at him. I, I have to handle him very differently. He understand, like he gets the screaming or he breaks down. And I think that's that that goes back to managing, make makes me a better managing is like understanding who everybody is and managing them very differently. And that that has helped. But yes, I, I got an ulcer at the Cecil from just the level of stress and screaming at people. Uh, and really I didn't want to fail myself. Uh and I wound up giving myself an ulcer. God, you two are the same. <laughs> I mean, truly the same. I mean, I'm joking, but you you both became head chefs. You both took over your own restaurants at 26, 27 years old. Very young for the job. And I think what you're talking about is getting thrown into this position of being a dad, being a father figure, being an authority figure too early or, or, or very early and having to learn trial by fire. Can I ask you both the reverse of Chang's metaphor which is, you know, if chefs are parents, when you guys were working under other chefs, do you feel like your relationships to the chefs you worked under had shades of that parental relationship? Did you feel like you had the same kind of relationship with your chefs that you did with a parental figure? I was just scared. <laughs> I was always scared I was going to get fired. Mm -hmm. and it's just a different era. I think what occurs or what should occur is you, you have to reflect what you're saying, right? So I reflected in my own personal career, especially during 2020, I've reflected a lot on how I can be a better individual. Uh, I can't just ask other people to be better individuals if I'm not going to be a better one. But I reflected back, back on my career, you know, should your managers or sous chefs or chefs work 80 hour weeks? No, that's not fair. That doesn't get the best productivity out of your team. Should your staff be diverse? Because where you came from, your staff might have not been diverse. Yes, it should be. So I think the smart people in this industry learn that there has to be a, a change and the hamster wheel can't keep going. And that's the only way the industry gets better. And I, I talk about this because I, I my central belief is as chefs, we are dads. And I think of you being a dad of two kids, twins, and hearing Chris's struggles of having a four-year-old and a newborn. And, you know, we've had a lot of time to reflect. And, and we've done this dad's podcast. And we've talked to a variety of different people. And I think the one thing I've learned is, so far, 
No one knows what they're doing. Right. <laughs> no one knows what they're doing at all, particularly from the dads. I think there's general <laughs> consensus that dads are not important, ultimately. <laughs> you know? And, this, and the last thing is, you really have to try to be not you. You know, like to be the best dad is is whatever you think your default setting is, that's not the right answer. That's what I've learned so far talking. I don't know how many dozen, dozen plus people is is having empathy, trying to see things from the child's perspective. That's hard, man. And being reflective, right? Mm -hmm. Being a dad, being the best version of your dad is, as you said, JJ, being reflective, right? When do you have time (laughs) to be reflective? I'm not, maybe when I'm walking to one of the restaurants now, uh, I I don't know, man. I, I, I try to reflect, me and my wife in the small amount of time that we get to talk with each other because she has a busy schedule, r- just got promoted r- running after COVID, which I'm very proud of her. Uh, we talk about the things that our parents instilled in us that we hate, right? And I think mm-hmm. as you have children, you learn about your parents as well as you learn about yourself because you watch your parents take care of your kids and you're like, well, why are you doing that? Mom, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Or my mother-in-law, like, Mama Chapman, what, what is that? Don't, do not do that with my kid. So, <laughs> or with my kids, right? And then, you know, we kind of go back and talk about this. My wife talks about how her mom instilled so much independence in her that she forgets to ask for help. And then when it kind of starts to crumble, she gets pissed off at me. I'm like, well, you never even asked me f- to help you. She was like, well, you should just recognize it. It's like, well, I didn't yeah, know JJ. you. Yeah, JJ. You should have recognized that. What's wrong? Right. With you? What's wrong with you? I was like, well, why did you didn't you could have just asked me for help? Or, you know, you know, I realized that my mom, you talked about how you know your mom would give you candy. I realized that my mom through life, I never thought I was wrong with anything because my mom never told me I was wrong. Mm-hmm. My mom just coached me through the situation, which I think is a great parenting technique. But as you get older, there's moments where you don't get to say somebody says you're wrong and you might feel really a certain way about it. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs, scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. How's your wife doing as a frontline worker? I mean, if things are getting out of control again, is she hanging in there? So, you know, she works at a orthopedic hospital, one of the best in the country here in New York City. And during the heart of the pandemic, they had to take the overflow from Flushing and and New York Presbyterian. And at her hospital, the way she put it to me was like, you know, my nurses don't see death at this rate. We've never seen death at this rate. And nurses and doctors mental well-being are not going to be the same, especially ones that don't work in ICUs and ER rooms. And you're asking people to zip bodies up and, and just be okay with it. Like, it's just okay. Somebody just died today. And for her, it was a little different because she's done mission work. She's done travel nursing. She's worked in the ER room and she really took that hospital under her wing. I don't know how she did it. I don't even know how 
the medical industry does it based on the stories that I hear. And she was maybe a tenth of a percent of what occurred, but like Flushing Hospital, like those nurses and doctors, I pray for them every day, New York Presbyterian, these places around the world. I think here in New York City, the COVID cases are up, but the hospital rates aren't where we saw them before. But I will say what she did say to me is, don't think that doctors and nurses are going to be able to go through another pandemic again from a mental well-being. It's impossible for them to go through that again. So people just really just need to do what we're being told so that the medical industry doesn't collapse. Because if it does, there will be nobody to take care of you. Just the common things that we need people to be taken care of. So I'm always concerned about her her mental well-being. Uh, and she just got promoted at our hospital. Uh, she'll be running the recovery room for her, all for hard work. They recognize that. And um, I pray for every doctor, nurse, anybody in the healthcare industry that's been stepping up during this pandemic, because uh, if you're not in it and you don't see it, you kind of think it's baloney. Some people do. Man, thanks for sharing that. I mean, the smallest thing I was I, I said early on, and I, I still think needs to happen is, I think anybody that's a frontline worker, particularly nurses and, and doctors, should never pay taxes ever again. I agree with you. Something. They need to do something, something. for them. Something. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's almost become like an empty, I'm not shitting on it, but you know, just like this whole hold up a sign that says, thank you, frontline workers. It almost desensitizes you to just how hard that work is and just how, I mean, dangerous it is right now. And JJ, like you said, like, I don't, I don't know how you expect people to go through another COVID winter, let alone another pandemic like i can't even imagine yeah i think you said it. it's like people just say okay you're a doctor and nurse you signed up for this so you you know just go in just what you went to school for it's like yeah we went for to help you out through one and we got out of it and now we're we're right back in it it's just not fair to them but she's a trooper man and she pushes through and her and her team are really strong so it's like a real wonderful thing to to see uh knowing that if you were going there for covid or for anything that they were taking care of you if, if you were as their loved one. And I think a lot of nurses, well, I believe all nurses and doctors across the nation or the world are treating people like if it's their loved one, because nobody's even allowed to come into the hospital mm-hmm. to see people maybe on their last day. So it's intense. Can you talk a little bit about the the work you you did, you know, sort of inspired by feeding your wife and the buy a bowl program that you've been doing during this time? Yeah. Um, like right in the beginning of the pandemic, my wife came home one night. It was like 1.30 in the morning and she stated, you know, hey, do you have any food from field trip or did you cook anything? I'm like, hey, it's one, what are you talking about? It's 1.30 in the morning. You didn't eat? <laughs> and she's like, no, no, we didn't eat anything. Not like I didn't eat anything. Like we didn't eat anything. And I'm like, okay, hold on. Back to it, Dave. So we can whip up anything real quick, right? Mm-hmm. Here you go. Don't eat cereal. That's silly. And the next day I was like, let me make sure I, she eats today. And I sent her and her team some rice bowls from field trip. And then I said, well, if her hospital downtown Manhattan is getting, nobody's having time to eat, and I'm watching the media and it's saying black and brown communities are getting hit the hardest, what about hospitals in our direct community, Harlem, Hospital Metropolitan, Mount Sinai? So I went onto Twitter and I said, does anybody's family members work at a Harlem hospital? And an old GM of mine said, my wife just finished residency. She's at uh, an ER room. I said, can I send her some food? He said, oh my God, she would love that. So we sent her some some food on the night shift and I took it back to Twitter and basically I think I did one of the best things I can do. I put smiles on people's faces with some hot rice bowls from Field Trip. And people started to call the restaurant 
tweet me back saying, I would love to match what you just did. Uh, at first I was like, okay, I can bring back my staff. This is amazing. And then it started to get out of control. Um, I had to call my partner, Will Sears, my sister who just got laid off and said, Hey, we got to put together a program here. My sister's very smart with the nonprofit area and managing things as a, she's a basketball coach, women's basketball coach. And they, we put together this buy a bowl program. And for frontline workers, I think we did around 30, 40,000 meals for frontline workers. My wife came back to me and basically said, stop sending food to hospitals. We're throwing away food. Too much is coming. And then we pivoted, started feeding friends and children, and then started partnering up with Rethink. And then to date, we've done over about 100,000 meals. Wow. Amazing. That's incredible, man. And that moment of starting to feed people started to make the Carlin community really realize who we were. And people started to eat at the restaurant that would just walk by us before. Mm-hmm. So what do you, what do you mean by that? Like they started to know who you were, were you, did you feel like maybe field trip, you guys were a stranger at first and that this helped break the ice or, or what do you mean? You know, way back when I first opened up, I shot an email to David and said, Hey David, can I get on a phone with you? And I need some mentorship. And he, he responded back real quickly and was like, yeah, man, I can get on the phone with you. We set up a call. It was supposed to be 15 minutes. I was on the phone with, with David for about 45 minutes. And David gave me a li- like some good information that actually accelerated, like put a battery back in my back. And I haven't had mentorship in the industry for a while. I'm always looking for a mentor. And David lent that to me at that time. And he said something to me was like, hey, man, you know, will people wait in the line for four hours? I was like, what are you talking about for four hours? He's like, yeah, we, we wait. would somebody wait for four hours for your food? Because if they're not going to wait four hours for your food, they're going to go to Popeye's around the corner and get that red beans and rice that's really good for $2.99. And I kind of reshaped my menu at that time. We had I added gumbo to the menu. I made sure there was collard greens in the bowl now, something that really spoke to the community so they can understand who we were. And people started to come in and they started to wait in the lot. And... That was like the first iteration of, okay, all right, I was able to make this change, this tweak, and now I have this product that I think can work because before it was a shortfall coming. It was basically, I was like, okay, I don't know if this is going to survive. I, this might fail. And then, this, was like, this was a couple of years ago, right? You'd probably been open like a month or two? Open up two months. Two months. And then we had the chat. Mm-hmm. And then you had just opened up Field Trip and it had a mission. I'm telling the story of rice in a way that no one else is going to say is my my story and a story of African-American culture. And I was like, this should be celebrated way more than traditional food media was talking about because you were not just, you weren't pissed. You had something to say. And I was like, man, like uh, a little bit like local when, when Roy and Dan opened up, I was like, guys, it's amazing what you're doing. It's so important but is it better than a dollar hamburger? Mm-hmm. Just because it's meaningful to you. And I, it's hard to give this kind of advice. And I was like, take it with a grain of salt. But if you want to really affect change, you've got to make it more accessible. And I think accessibility is such a bad word in our business. Mm. Don't you agree, JJ? Like people no, feel I like- No, I, I do. Because, you know, I, all those words mean something to somebody, right? So- I had to bring my Aunt Jeannie in after you said this to me. So my Aunt Jeannie, Harlem night, been there, eats at these places, doesn't care what your mission is, just cares that the money that I'm going to spend, is it going to be good and is it going to be fulfilling? And I remember you saying to me, like, don't worry about telling people about Carolina gold rights. Like, you're giving this these history points for what? 
they'll ask you their own personal questions about the rice after they like it. They'll, they'll make you tell the story. And I remember on Jeannie coming in and saying, Hey man, the way you make that black rice is just not good enough. Nobody's right. going to eat that black rice. It's not good enough. Like I can buy wild rice. Like when people look at your black rice, this is wild rice to them. They don't know about wild rice. And she's just that honest person, that heart to heart. And I worked on that black rice and now on Jeannie and all her friends and everybody that lives in Harlem comes in for that black rice with the salmon and peri-peri sauce. It's just one of those things now that is delicious that you know you'll come there for. And then you learn about everything else about it. And that's what I learned about Fast Casual. It's you, you have a lot of competition, more competition than you envision. You got the bodega, the deli, the Caribbean spot, the food truck guy. And is your bowl or whatever you offer better than the local person? And when we first started, it just wasn't. After I got off the phone with you, David, then I started to course correct myself or to make myself think better. Okay, would I wait? Is this good enough? Will I wait for this personally before I ask anybody else to? That truly helped me. So I don't think I ever told you thank you, but I'm with you now. I want to tell you, you know, thank you very much for for that time Mm -hmm. uh, on the phone together. No, listen, I'm happy that sometimes my advice actually (laughs) helps out. But, you know, these are the same struggles that I've gone through and... I think if I could just distill it for anybody that's listening, and I'm so happy that you sound better and you're doing real positive impact work with Field Trip because the most dangerous thing that can happen, I think, as a chef and not just a chef, but any creator that's giving it out there to the world is you think your idea makes sense to everybody. Right. It's real scary, man. (laughs) Just because you have a great idea doesn't make it delicious. Correct. I mean, it just seems like it's about <laughs> humility, right? I think there's a lot of people, JJ, trying to get into the fast casual game and they sort of assume like, I've got pedigree, I'm a chef, people are going to line up for this because I'm I'm me. But like you said, you got to compete with Bodega, Deli, the spot that's been doing what you're about to try to do mm-hmm. for 25, 30 years. And it's, I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's probably a wake-up call at a certain point where you're like, wow, it's arrogant to think that I'm just, I can come in here and just do this. I'm oh, get no. it right. I mean, ha- Harlem in alone is a, is a wake up call. I think that's what after I used to say, why won't people open in Harlem? Well, Harlem would keep you true to yourself, right? Because there's a lot of on <laughs> genies walking around that will tell you. And I remember my first encounter that really hurt me it was an older black man walked in to field trip, literally looked at the sign that says Rice's culture and said, you think because you got Rice's culture sign up here going to make us walk in the door? <laughs> oh, and I was like, what are you talking about? That's our slogan. Now you're using the word culture. I'm like, yeah, I'm part of the culture. You're part of the culture. We're all part of it. It's a rice culture. And we had this 45 minute conversation about it. And he believed that the business was owned by a white guy Mm -hmm. and that I was the face of the business that was owned by a white person. And that I was trying to infiltrate the community by using these words and being very unauthentic that I had to say, no man, like I'm the owner. This is my concept. My aunt lives there. I've grown up in this community later on in my life. I had to like plead myself. And at the end of it, I was like, am I doing something else wrong here? No, I mean, he's seen it before, right? That's why he's seen it happen before. And a lot of that before the pandemic started to occur because I would have these conversations on the street with people and they're like, nah, man, that place is too nice for you to own. And I'm like, hold on, you got Jordans, you got a diamond chain on. We're supposed to like nice things in life too. But communities like Harlem, Detroit, Oakland, they've seen this before. They've seen this come in, 
make it seem like it's something else and then take it over. And I think during the pandemic, to get back to what you're saying, Chris, people saw me coming in the restaurant, opening and closing. People saw me mopping the floors. People saw me being the only person at one time behind the counter with one other person like, hold on, this guy got to really be the owner now. There's no other way he would just be here to be here during a pandemic. It's impossible, right? And that started to break down the barrier and Harlem started to really uplift field trip to a level I'd never seen before or I imagined it would have taken me two to five years to try to crack that code. I find that so beautiful, man. Dude, JJ, I'm a little moved. Not a little, I'm a lot moved because there are very few happy stories in 2020. (laughs) And I'm just so happy that you never wavered and you kept on trying to improve this great idea that you had and people are seeing it now. And man, I think... If anybody's that's listening that has an idea that they're like, shit, I, I'm good. I want to open my own restaurant. Like they should follow everything you've done since you opened up Field Trip two years ago to what it is now, turning adversity into an advantage. And at any step of the way, I think anybody, including myself, would be like, that's it. I'm so disheartened that this beautiful idea that I have is not being seen by people, man. And that's what makes this idea great and dangerous. And to have that happen now where people can see it, you know, this idea only takes form where there's like real currency, man. People believe it. They got to believe it. And that's why I think in this world today, with you can have everything, you can say anything, but somehow authenticity, this is the authenticity that matters is like, are they in it? You know what I mean? And I think that's so powerful for you to be like, this is, this is me and people can see that now. So I'm so happy that you just mentioned all of that. Oh, thanks, David. That means a lot. I mean, I feel like we had a lot in common, right? You opened up on Lower East Side when nobody believed in that community, mm-hmm. right? People thought you were crazy. You, you put no backs on the chairs. I mean, you 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 were a pillar to change in the industry. I, I remember when you first opened up there, I think I was in Bachelor. I can remember it perfectly. It was a winter, cold winter day in New York City. We were with some friends. I was in, back in Bachelors at the Culinary Institute of America, and everybody was like, yeah, we got to go to Momofuku. And we waited in the line. We sat at the corner at the first location before you moved it. And it was one of the best experiences I ever had, right? You, your team always watched the way people were eating and, um, and you shape a community now that's one of the most vibrant communities in New York City. Well, I appreciate that, JJ. And, you know, I, I wish I was a more mature chef back then for sure. But the one thing I can tell you that I think is important is I don't think we were making really good food then. I mean, some things were good, but I think what, what mattered ultimately. And I think it's the same reason why when people go to Harlem and they cross your street to go to someone else, because maybe the food may not be as good, but they it's currency. It's like they want to buy something they believe in. And I mm-hmm. think more than anything in the earliest days of Momofuku is we sucked. But I think <laughs> what we figured out was they want to come in to see something that's real. You know, like that bills, like that's, that's the stuff that you can't replicate, man. And I didn't know what the hell we were doing. We were going out of business. That was the only reason why we decided just to be like, fuck it. We're just going to be honest. And right. I just think it's so moving to hear you just say, basically, in the 2019 version, 2020 version, like, I'm now just, I had the idea, but now I'm being as honest as I can about it to you that's trying to buy it. And that's amazing, man. It's really not just heartwarming. It like gives me life to hear this kind of shit. No, I'm being honest. As people see, and especially today, right? 
people see how honest you're, you're trying to be and, and honesty is currency, right? And if you can be honest with food and not disrespect the culture of the food you might be cooking and it tastes really good. And I'm always stressing that to my team. It's like, okay, I, I understand if we didn't give good customer service today, I'd rather somebody complain about that than telling me the food wasn't good because we put out really good food and we work really hard to put out that good food. They're not opening in two new markets in Long Island City that we're open right now in a small food hall and coming into Rockefeller Center. I'm more nervous than ever in my career. But if I'm going to, I told my wife in the beginning of the pandemic, I'm not going to work this hard to come out of the pandemic the same way. So either for better or for worse, but we'll see how it all works out. When are the, when are the two new locations opening up? So Long Island City opened up last week in a building called the Jackson Co. building. We had a really good first week, and I hope more people come out and check it out. And Rockefeller Center will open. We have a slight hiccup, but it will open very soon. Good, good. Can I ask you a question, JJ? I, uh, Chang and I have talked to a lot of chefs during this pandemic from our respective bedrooms and living rooms, and uh, everyone's having a hard time. It's Everyone's trying to come out of this either alive or, or better for it. I read a headline about you a few weeks ago that said something like how JJ Johnson beat 2020. Do you feel like you beat this year? Did you, did you win? I don't know if I beat the year. I probably have had, I think with David saying, I was able to be honest, but you know, I'll take a step back real quick. Like when we look at the statistics of the food industry and we hear Chipotle up 238%, Domino's up 400%, Papa John's wing shop. These places are located in communities like Harlem or rural areas of America right? Mm -hmm. Like where I grew up in the Poconos. These are the only options that people have. So if they're the only options that people have to eat, then they're going to, their numbers are going to be up, right? It's like if they, they played Jedi mind tricks on us and told us don't open in these areas, go down to these one percenter America areas. And those are the people that just want to eat your food. And without Harlem, we, I wouldn't be open. So Harlem beat 2020. I didn't Mm. beat it. The community of Harlem are the ones to, I think, every day. They come into field trip. They order delivery. They stop by and check on the staff. And some people just come by to make sure the staff is okay and healthy and maybe bring them vitamin C. It's an unreal what I see. And they're the ones that have beat it. And I think when, if you look at the statistics as Harlem in general, there's not a lot of restaurants that have closed. Hmm. You know, when I walk up and down the streets, maybe it's one here, one there. But the true pillars of Harlem are still open. People are still ordering food from them. And the community doesn't want to see them gone. And I hope as people are opening new restaurants around America that they're looking at different communities, right? That maybe your restaurant will work in Harlem or Oakland or Detroit, right? Or Atlanta or Wynwood or wherever it might be that it doesn't look like your normal clientele because those people are there and they want to eat delicious food. And we'll try to model that as we grow, you know, besides Rockefeller Center, which is a great opportunity for us. But as we look to other communities, we're looking at the Bronx, we're looking at Brooklyn, we're looking at places like Savannah, Georgia. We're looking at other places that look like Harlem from a demographic standpoint, gender standpoint to help. So I didn't defeat it. The Harlemites are the ones to thank. Yeah. Do you think that you'll ever open up in like, um, I don't know, Orange County? California or like <laughs> Dallas, you know, like just take a crack at my hometown. Come on, go ahead. Just well, my, no, my I, I was, I'm simply saying like, I remember a lot of the conversation that we had too a couple of years ago was what makes it 
to the next level where it gets accepted by white American culture, right? Like accessibility isn't just about winning your core audience. Mm -hmm. It's also about winning a larger audience. And to me, field trip, everyone's talking about diversity, but in some ways it's a little bit of lip service, right? Like something like field trip should be delicious ultimately without people caring about the message because that's how it would work in Dallas ultimately. It's, and then, then people find out that the message is like, oh, I didn't know, right? That's amazing. Right. Would you want to open up in a place that isn't or doesn't look like Harlem? I think that's what the test market of Rockefeller Center is like. So we'll test it out in Rockefeller Center and see what it what happens. I would say the one thing that I've learned is that Field Trip is a working class brand. It really talks to working class people of uh, of New York City as people see the menus go as the staff at Rockefeller Center sees the menus go up, the lead chief or the maintenance guy or the housekeeping lady they're like, oh my God, those prices are amazing. Oh, gumbo? I want I want to eat that for lunch, right? So I'm learning that it, it is geared to, you know, the working class Americans. And yes, that would work in Dallas. And one day, maybe hopefully Orange County. And if I am able to go into those markets, and that means that field trip is bigger than I've ever imagined, right? It's not just a 20 to 30 rush, quick service restaurant. This is hundreds of hundreds and hundreds of field trips because if it can work in Harlem, that means it can work in other places like Harlem. If it can work in Rockefeller Center, then it can work in Orange County. So it means that we've really cracked the code. And I think that's the goal now. I mean, my initial goal was to have 10 to 20 of these in my life. Uh, now it's like, okay, how can I potentially be more than that? And I think the last real brand to really crack that code was Chipotle, like 1993 or 97, whatever it might be. I think everybody else has like maybe 100, 200 units. But after that, nobody has more than that uh, because it's hard, right? Does your demographic... JJ, you need that McDonald's money. People forget. Chipotle didn't get to be Chipotle without taking without a half McDonald's. a billion bucks. Yeah. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. McDonald's gave them the supply chain, right? So I think that's... McDonald's, the- if you're listening... <laughs> I'm uh, doing some market research for you guys. If you need to give someone a supply chain and half a billion dollars, I think uh, we found uh, the right uh, investment for you guys. Hint, hint. No finder's fee, McDonald's. Just, just take it. Appreciate that, David. Thanks. <laughs> um, can I ask another thing too? Because another, you know, this whole world and food and all everything, it's... I'm now asked myself, maybe the only way to do anything meaningful, not meaningful, but makes sense in this profession and it's change, right? Because I remember a lot of food critics would say, oh, every chef's trying to open up a, a fast casual restaurant. And I, I remember having a conversation with them. They're complaining that the culinary industry doesn't have work-life balance and it's, the industry needs to be better. But they're complaining simultaneously that chefs are continuing to open up fast casual spots. And I'm like, fuck you. If somebody wants to do this because they can have a better life and you're advocating for a better life, then you should be all for it. And they're lamenting that all of this talent is not opening up these fine dining or Michelin star, blah, blah, blah restaurants. And I'm like, you can't have your cake and eat it too. And you're missing the perspective of why this is happening is that there is no more ability to carve out a way to express yourself in food or to have a sustainable lifestyle doing a one restaurant. And I've encouraged everybody to say that, ask me, hey, should I open a restaurant? I'm like, 
make sure it's scalable. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, if it can't be scalable, don't fucking do it. Don't do it. Don't fucking do it. And Mm-mm. I don't want to say like, oh, there's no artistry in this. It's There's nothing more important to me than being able to express yourself. But right now, it's about doing something that isn't going to be doomed or susceptible for failure in the next pandemic or whatever. Like, don't do, build something to last. And I'm not saying don't do a small, cool restaurant, right? But I think more and more people need to be doing exactly what you're doing. There's no guarantee for success, but man, I hope that we open up less real restaurants and more places that just serve good food. Yeah, That's I don't what know. I think. Why do people think that fast casuals are a step down? It's probably, it's harder. Yeah. Right? Because you have to be more consistent than you've ever been. It isn't easy being that consistent. It's impossible, man. Yeah. I mean, even Chang. Even if more chefs don't try to do what JJ is doing, I think the, that more people need to look up to people like JJ. You know, like part of the reason why dining is so inaccessible is like you're all of our heroes. Accessibility, like you said, was a bad word. And all of our heroes, chefs made the most inaccessible things. You can't get a reservation here. You can't afford to go here. And like, those are the heroes, right? <laughs> I pray for JJ's continued success. Cause I think if we can start seeing field trip as the real thing to aspire to, to feed lots of people good food, then we start cracking down on that inaccessibility as a goal. Yeah, I mean, the restaurant industry is supposed to give people delicious food all the time, right? So, I mean, it's kind of like that moment when you when somebody walked in your door at 59 or whatever time your restaurant closed at 59, like, we're closed. You should have made mm. a reservation. It's like, no, man, feed them. You need them, right? So I mm. say all the time, you know, all the items on the menu at Field Trip are under $13. But if I could get the price lower, that means I can feed more people. Oh, man, you and Chang, just the same people. That 859 thing is Chang all over it. Like, you, you guys are, it's amazing. Can I, can I ask, do you think you'll ever want to open up a 40-seat restaurant and do that shit all over again? I mean, I always get the itch to do it, just to say I've done it. But my soul and my mind is uh, dedicated to Field Trip right now. And I think I have something really special here that you only get once in a lifetime. I remember Randall Lane from Forbes said to me one time, you got to only be right once, JJ. You don't need to be right 40 (laughs) times, right? So I'll leave the 40C restaurants to somebody else at this moment and let them crack that code. But I'm all about field trip in this fast, casual world. I think I understand it now a little bit better than I did before and and learn it every day. And my model going in 2021 with it is being consistent. And in a 40C restaurant, you're never as consistent as, as a fast, casual. Can I ask you both each one one last quick question? Dave, do you have an Aunt Jeannie character in your life who will just give it to you straight, who you really trust about the food? Do you Have you had that in your career to be like, hey, this shit's not up to stuff, buddy? Or is that you? It's me, but my mom has never liked my food, ever. <laughs> ever. Ever, ever. Even when you cook at home, she's just, it's not up to stuff. No, it's just, she's never, ever said, I like this. <laughs> Anything. Nothing? Honestly, <laughs> I mean, people know her. She's an incredibly lovely lady, and I love her to death, but she's never said, oh, this is good. It's always, this is too salty. Mm. <laughs> well, this yeah. is too salty. But yeah. in terms of me, someone telling me, I, I try to be my worst critic, and I, I think I've taken that too far. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no kidding. And I'm trying to learn how to enjoy you know, the good moments, but that idea that we're talking about is you never want someone to tell you your idea sucks. Right. You know? 
And that hurts more than food tasting bad. I can take the bad food criticism as much as I don't want it. But when someone tells me my idea that I think is pure and true and that gets me out of bed every day and do the hard work, like I need that I can't have criticized you know, before I do anything else, that, that idea has to be as flawless as can be, you know, and, and the intention of what JJ is trying to do with field trip, you don't market that, you don't say that, right? That's not what it is about. But I think, you know, you can criticize the food if the criticism is to be constructive, to make it better. And as long as you know that that person that's criticizing you is trying to do something to help your idea out, then I'm down with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't listen to Angie all the time, Chris. Just, she, she just feels that she can I'm just sure let Jeannie's me know. Wrong here, here and there. She can I'm just sure let she's... me know. I'll make sure she listens to this and she will get a big laugh out of it. Uh, um, my last little question for you, JJ, is uh, going back to the dad stuff. One thing I love to do, and, and Chang and I love to hear about, is um, the kind of stuff you're cooking at home. What What do you got? What What works for your kids? What's an ace in the hole meal? You got to get the kids to eat. What's your sort of go to? move you got anything yeah i've learned that cooking for my kids is a mental thing right so it's not about what it is it's about telling them what it is so <laughs> they will eat steak and lamb or anything that looks like steak they will eat it and i just call it steak you're getting steak today you're getting, and my daughter like steak again and um that's what i will uh always use it from a mental standpoint for breakfast, oatmeal is like that one meal that I can add anything to it and they will eat it. I can yep. put vegetables in it. I can do I can do savory. I can do sweet. They will always eat it. And I think that just comes from like really early, early day childhood when they first started eating. Oatmeal was that first thing. I Well, rice grits was the first thing I gave them, but I was always adding in uh, strawberries, bananas, or green beans or peas. So oatmeal has always been a go-to. But they're their own eaters these days. And um, I don't know when they stop liking vegetables, but that's something that we're struggling with. But who doesn't struggle with that with their kids? So, uh, you know. Oh, man. I'm so glad you say that because Hugo refused to eat vegetables. And I'm like, oh, I don't fucking like them either. So why does he want to eat them? Why would I want to just eat spinach? <laughs> my daughter my daughter calls it hot salad and uh she's not a huge fan either of hot salad so before i before i get you out of here and people that are listening and they have the opportunity to visit your restaurant's field trip and we hope that they are in dallas and orange county and i hope that mcdonald's does listen because they should fucking give you 456 million dollars if they gave chipotle it's like so much of success isn't about having delicious food it's about having the other all the other breaks happen mm-hmm. Right. And it would be amazing to see that happen. And I'm serious. McDonald's, don't fuck this up. Lastly, on this, and I don't want the listeners to be like, oh, I can't believe you're supporting McDonald's. Just shut the, just shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, shut the fuck up. <laughs> um, what is the order for people that haven't been to field trip? Right. Ooh. What do you think that they have to get? Give us the top three things. Oof. Okay. So, top three things is. Salmon bowl, so pineapple, black fried rice, salmon, peri-peri. All the bowls come with collard greens, sweet potatoes, and Brussels sprouts as the vegetables in the bowl. Crab pockets, which is our take on wonton. So we make a house-made cream cheese with some lump crab meat and a sweet and sour dipping you sauce. You can't so- make that shit, JJ. That's an appropriation, man. <laughs> no, oh, that no. Shit, that shit is good, bro. That shit is good. And the, salt, the sauce is like a mambo sauce. That shit is just good, man. <laughs> We got you. We got him. We're going to get listeners too. They're like, fuck that, JJ. 
you know what? I'm going to just tell you to shut the fuck up. <laughs> Listener, getting angry, shut the fuck up. <laughs> uh, oh and then we, and then we, uh, what else? And then dragon fruit lemonade. Ooh. What's dragon fruit lemonade? So we take dragon fruit, like dehydrated dragon fruit powder, fresh. Wait, wait, I, honestly, I don't, I, am I an idiot? I don't, I've never even heard dragon fruit. What is it? What? Am I an idiot? You've seen dragon fruit, man. What does it look like? It looks like a little fireball, man. It's pink on the outside. Fireball has like freckles in the white in the inside where freckles look like poppy seeds. That's a dragon fruit. What do you call it, dude? I thought it's breadfruit. I never knew. You know, it's it's a fruit that I never eat because it looks like something on an avatar. It does. I don't know his name, dragon fruit. I swear to you, learn something every day. Wow. But I've never, I've never actually, I don't even think I've ever eaten it. Does it taste good? Obviously, what does it taste like? A good like? one. A good one tastes great. It's kind of, it's kind of, ref- it's very refreshing, uh, similar to like uh, apple or pear, uh, just not as sweet. It looks like something they eat on Star Wars. Definitely they eat it on Star Wars. How have I get- never actually like, I've never cut into one in my life. I don't believe that. No, I'm serious. I swear to God, <laughs> I've never <laughs> held one or cut into one. I don't know how is that possible. So what do you do with the lemonade? You make lemonade and you puree it with it? We get the powder. So we get the dehydration powder and then rehydrate it with uh, some lemon juice and uh, freshly squeezed lemon juice. And it's one of our top sellers. People love the dragon fruit lemonade. And I would say those are the three things to go with. But there's a bowl. Each bowl at Field Trip, the rice grain dictates where the flavor comes from. So you get Carolina gold rice with crispy chicken and barbecue sauce. You can get coconut sticky rice with green curry. And shrimp, uh, you can get gumbo. That's a take on um, my time I spent in West Africa. So you're really on a field trip around the world. And um, I hope you come by one day, David and Chris, and uh, we'll eat together. <laughs> you know, in LA right now, and he's in San Francisco, but when we can travel safely, because I got to get, I'm overdue for a trip back to New York for sure. And I told you that last time, but um, I'm so thankful that you came on this podcast and and we got the chat and I mean that, that your idea is an idea anymore. And when that idea becomes internalized and eaten by other people and it becomes something that people want to protect and nourish, you know, I am the biggest naysayer, doom and gloomer possible. But when that stuff happens, it gives me, gives me so much hope. So I'm so happy to see that success, man. Thank you very much. And good luck with the two kids, twins. (laughs) Good luck with that. Good luck I need, with that. I, thanks for that luck. I need it. <laughs> They're going to be walking through the door any moment. <laughs> oh, man. All right, guys. Well, thank you, Chef JJ. Uh, stay tuned for another podcast this week or next week. And give us five stars on iTunes. Send emails to askdavidmajordomamedia.com for any Ask Dave questions. And visit Field Trip, Chef JJ Johnson's Ode to the Working Man Lunch. And it's not only delicious, there's very few good people in this business these days with good stories. It's got Long Island City. He's got Rockefeller Center that should be opening up soon and the Harlem location. And don't forget to support your frontline workers. <laughs>